This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley's meat sticks have been a lifesaver during this hot summer. Since they're shelf stable, I always have three Paleo Valley meat sticks in my bag at all times. It's also been perfect for my boys' lunch boxes. I love Paleo Valley's grass finished beef sticks and pasture raised turkey sticks because they support US family farmers that focus on regenerative agriculture. These meat sticks are from animals that have never been fed grains, soy, corn, or GMOs and have never been given antibiotics. The spices in these meat sticks are also 100% organic. The sticks come in five different flavors, and my favorite is the original beef stick, and my boys love the teriyaki beef sticks and the original pasture raised turkey stick. Paleo Valley's meat sticks are a perfect snack and, frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Each stick is about $2 with our discount code, and it comes in a 10 pack bag. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.comslash CATG and use code CATG to get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's one thing to say, I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole other thing to say, you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're jumping from diet to diet, at a certain point, you have to wonder the only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk, <laughs> get some vitamin D, breathe、yeah. some fresh air, and stay happy and healthy and, and take care of yourselves. Let's just have some real talk. <laughs> Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. I didn't see this, but my mug is from low carb chili because I've My largest non, non American population is in Santiago, Chile. Oh, interesting. I've、oh, got、wow. a huge number of people that I, I see. I treat patients all over the world. Right. But this, the Chileans are a large, large part of my international. I just happen to have this mug. I'm sitting in my office. So <laughs> just,、nice. I didn't see it until I picked it up. Well, go ahead. <laughs> Thanks for joining the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. We are so excited today. Laura and I. Have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Robert Sives. For those of you, I'm sure most of you know who he is, but he is also known as the carb addiction doc. And Dr. Sives, I just wanted to do a quick note and apologize for butchering your name in our last interview. I got a lot of heat for that. And so I wanted to publicly apologize. Blessing of all of that is that now with every Guest, I have on, I always ask, How should I pronounce your name? So、um, I apologize. You know, Judy, I, I appreciate that. I'm not even sure I say it correctly. That's why I just go by Rob, or I, I keep it very low key because this is、yes. conversational about people. It's not, I'm just sharing my knowledge. I'm certainly not an expert. I have a lot of knowledge, but I'm learning all the time. And、uh, so, no, I appreciate that apology, but、uh, it's not necessary. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to have you on. I, I know that I've been、um, on a carnivore ish, like started keto, found carnivore、uh, for four years now. And with that, obviously it was all diet related, but you were one of the first people, one of your clients actually reached out to me three years ago or so before you were the carb addiction doctor, before you had a YouTube channel. And she sent me an old podcast that you did. It was a three part podcast series. That you did, and I can't even remember who it was with, but it, they were like three 20 minute podcasts. And I listened to those, and no joke, they changed my life because you were the first person who I heard talk about、um, not only the, the food addiction, right, and the sugar addiction, and even how something like fruit can be a trigger for you, but more than that, you talked about how to work through it. 
And, you know, you brought up the term of bridge foods, right? Where instead of eating a pint of ice cream, you have some sugar-free jello. Now, is sugar-free jello an ideal food to have long-term? No, but it's an amazing choice initially. And so doing things like sugar-free gums and kind of all of those bridge foods, like that was a huge moment for me. And it's something that I've referenced many times, like my very first uh, YouTube video, I mentioned a lot of the concepts that, that I had learned from you. And I know those resonated so much. So I'm very excited to kind of broach this subject with you because of your openness about your own struggles have been um, really helpful for me. And I know then for uh, many other people. Yes. Yeah, I appreciate that, Laura. You know, one of the, just as a comment, we've been, I've personally have been working in the space, both in research and clinically since 1990. Um, so it's a very, very long time. And we've evolved, as I said to, to Judy a few seconds ago, it's, we still don't know everything. We're learning as we go. But uh, when you've seen so much, you start to recognize patterns. And I think of, of everything, the most important part is to ignore the noise out there and yeah. look at behavior patterns within yourself. That's the, the best thing I can tell my patients and say, you know, understand how you function and how you operate and then decide for yourself whether something it, is, has the potential to cause you harm or not. And that's really the evolution and understanding those patterns of harm in most people. Um, and it, so often that guidance goes against the best advice that you see on the internet or from people that have never lived our lives. So that's always the challenge. And, you know, that's where something like the bridge drink came along is, well, we have to do this, but how can I do it in a way that it doesn't harm me? Right. And, um, you know, so, so little things like that, we'll, we'll do a deep dive into whatever you guys want to bring up and help people to understand themselves so they can benefit themselves. Remember, the harm we do is we do to ourselves. Right. Nobody can undo this harm but ourselves. And nobody is responsible for becoming sick, but we can choose not to be. And that's such an important thing to absolve people of guilt of I did this to me or I'm a terrible person or I've failed at everything. That absolution is very necessary if you are going to be, and the, the, the most important word that I use is empowered to change yourself. You did this without the knowledge. Once you get the knowledge, you can then apply it to a sequential process of change. It isn't a one-time thing. And I, and I fully agree with that. There's a lot of people, though, that I see as they are trying to heal, that they struggle figuring out identifications of their triggers or really getting to know themselves. So how should somebody, as they're starting to eat a low-carb diet and then they get triggered or they're craving something or they feel that, you know, they they have a sense of loss with a certain food that they used to turn to a lot, how do they start identifying that, oh, that was a trigger, I need to stop eating that, or I should probably not listen to this person or not eat this food? Where do they start getting the self-actualization of, oh, I identify that I probably shouldn't go there? And I think most people jump into the middle of a journey. There's a beautiful book um, called Changing for Good from, I think it's about 20 or 30 years ago, by a guy called Prochaska, three of them, who studied people who successfully quit smoking. And they looked at the process of change, of how they went from, hell no, I love to smoke, to that's disgusting, how the hell can anybody smoke? Right. And the stages in which people evolve. And so when we work in this space, if you're going to buy into the addiction concept, you want to start by converting people from pre-contemplative to being contemplative of who they are and not what they're eating, but why they're doing it. 
So before I ask anybody to change whatsoever, don't change a thing, but ask yourself three questions and they're interrelated. Everybody's focused on calories. Forget about calories. They're irrelevant. Your body doesn't work that way. Okay, period. Um, however, look at one thing. Uh, before you eat, eat or drink anything, know what the total carbohydrate content is. Total, not net. Total carbohydrate content is irrespective of source. I don't care if it's a donut or an apple because your body doesn't see what goes in your mouth. Your body sees what goes into the, into the bloodstream. And look at the total carbohydrate content of everything you eat and drink to really quantify how big and how massive a percentage of your diet is sugar and starch, is carbohydrates. And uh, um, the second question, the second and the third question are interrelated as part of the contemplation. Ask yourself two related questions. Number one, look at how often you do or actually how often you desire or how often you actually put anything in your mouth to eat and drink. I don't care if it's a sip of water or a tub of ice cream. Look at how often you open your mouth to put something in. And then the, the third related question is, why am I doing this right now? Am I truly thirsty? That's why I'm drinking water. Or am I drinking this Coke because I'm a little stressed or a little bored? Am I eat, I've just eaten a big steak. I'm full. Why am I sitting in front of the TV with a tub of ice cream? Uh, look at how often you put uh, anything to eat or drink in your mouth and ask yourself why. Most of the time, people that are struggling with obesity or diabetes or any of the metabolic diseases are so busy looking and foraging for something to eat or drink, or they've surrounded themselves with it, they don't even bother to connect with how they feel. Am I stressed? Am I anxious? Am I depressed? Am I bored? Am I exhausted? Am I having fun? The same thing with a smoker. Smokers do not consider why they need a cigarette it's just completely opportunistic. And until you understand why you're eating it, um, you don't really know if the intent is for your head or for your body. And the final thing to say on the introduction part, the contemplation part, is for the first time in our existence as a species, over the last 50 to 70 years, most of us live within a tsunami of an abundance of food. Within 40 or 50 yards of where we are, there's this enormous amount. So the challenge for us is no longer food scarcity. It is defending ourselves from this ubiquitous wave of crap coming at us. Um, so the first part is understand how big the elephant is. Understand the relationship. The next thing is, I ask my patient, how do you eat an elephant? Well, most dietitians ask people to eat the elephant in one bite. Here's your diet. Off you go. You start tomorrow. And people try really hard and they crash and burn because none of us are rabbits. So really what you want to do is if you want to go on a diet, if you want to change what you eat to lose weight, by all means, count calories, count carbohydrates. Uh, diets and weight loss are about calories, carbohydrates, and eating. Behavior management, addiction management is about behavior and habits. Right. And therefore, you start slowly in little sections and you change one thing, you remove one thing that is a bad habit or that's a habit that's become harmful, but it had a positive purpose. So therefore, you have to figure out what that positive purpose is and replace it with a, uh, a positive purpose without harm. So for example, when Laura was talking about a bridge earlier on, when I was fat, it was Coke and M&M's. Those were the little snacks that I ate as mind-cleansing moments every 15 to 20 minutes. And the human brain, no matter who you are, if you have a brain, you need a break about every 15 to 20 minutes. A little few seconds of 
just something. And we all have a quirk that we do. Well, my quirk when I was fat was Coke and M&Ms. So I said, that's important to me, just like cigarettes are important. Well, I'm crumpling up the cigarettes, throwing them away, but I'm putting gum in my pocket. I'm getting rid of my calorie-containing or carbohydrate-containing Coke and M&Ms, and I'm sipping on coffee. Is my coffee perfect? Hell no, but it's perfect for me. So leave me alone. Because I'm just like you and I, we're all going to die. And I'll take death by coffee anytime because I've never written a, a, a death certificate for someone who died of coffee. I think those are maybe that even picked this up from you, but I'm always saying that I can only focus on one thing at a time. And if it's so many things that I have that are non-negotiable things, I just give up and go back to what I was doing before. But if I can say that I'm going to, um, you know, I want to focus on how often I'm eating. I want to focus on what I'm eating, but I can't do all of those things at once. And so my one non-negotiable is like, I stay carnivore. And ideally I would fast because for me, fasting is a big part of realizing the difference between my physical hunger and emotional hunger and boredom hunger, right? That's been a big part of it. But if I don't fast, okay, I don't fast. That wasn't my non-negotiable. My non-negotiable is I stay carnivore. And that's kind of the one thing at the end of the day that I kind of have to focus on now. And even early on, it wasn't as strict as carnivore. It was not binging on sugar. And so the the other foods were, um, I think I probably wouldn't have survived the first year without having a, a Diet Coke as a replacement for all of the carbs and sugar that I used to have before. And it really was what r- helped bring me to this point. And when we try to just, like you said, when you're trying to digest this elephant all at once and fix all of your triggers and your problems at once, I think most people end up kind of falling off the wagon and just giving up entirely. I think you're absolutely right. Just a couple of comments there. So we divide it up into stages. And this didn't happen suddenly in your life. You're not going to correct this uh, uh, immediately. You're going to correct it in stages. But in addiction management, the stages should be binary. So the first thing we do is we remove calorie-containing fluids and replace them with non-calorie-containing fluids. And it doesn't matter what they are. Uh, It doesn't matter what they are as long as they don't contain calories. It's the only time I'm going to use the word calories. Then we change the plate of food because most people aren't just uh, metabolically ill and obesity is part of metabolic illness because of the meals they eat. It's because of the snacking. It's because the itinerant and opportunistic things. And, And our mind is so focused on eating and drinking as a source of resolution. It happens all the time and we defend that. So the first step is the fluids, which is the easiest step to get into. The second step is then the food that we eat. And it doesn't always have to be everything at once. Um, in fact, a, a buddy of mine by the name of, you may not know this guy. Um, I don't think many people have heard of him, Jason Fung. No, I'm kidding. Jason <laughs> Fung is the guy that created intermittent fasting. Yep. And intermittent fasting created was created by a group because of a group of people in Toronto, which is where Jason works, mostly Eastern folks, Chinese, Indian, very high penetration of diabetes. Jason's a nephrologist, and he was seeing all these people come in with chronic renal failure because of their diabetes. And he said, guys, you've got to, got to quit eating carbohydrates. And they said, forget about it. We're not going to do that. This is how we've always done things. This is our culture. And he had a group of them that were Muslim. And he said, okay, let's not do, uh, uh, let's not do, forget about carbohydrates. Let's just do Ramadan every day. And in Ramadan, for those that don't know, uh, Muslims for 40 days, I believe, uh, fast from sun up to sundown. And he said, let's just do that. And that was the birth of intermittent fasting. And if you're just not consuming anything for a block of time, you're allowing your body to cycle, you're reversing slowly insulin resistance. 
And then once you're doing well, and as you start to see results, you can then add in more and more difficult things. So for a lot of my patients, I, I don't start typically with intermittent fasting as my primary goal. I allow that to happen. I start with progressive carbohydrate elimination or replacement. However, intermittent fasting happens ordinarily as you suppress appetite and as you find an alternative for that itinerant snacking or for those meals that you just don't need. But it's not, in my opinion, not a good place to start, but allow it to evolve. And I think along those lines, Laura, I think one of the worst things that people can do, and our authoritarians tend to do this and then they crash and burn, one of the worst things you can do is go from the standard American diet to carnivore. It is too austere, it is too strict, and the goal of carnivore is not primarily, for a little while, it's a therapeutic intervention to lose some weight or get rid of diabetes. But if it has to become a way of life. And if it's too strict and too rigid up front, you're going to crash and burn and you're not going to come back. So if you will, every one of us, uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know completely about Judy, but I assume she's the same, evolve toward carnivore by slowly eliminating carbohydrates, becoming fat adapted. I'm not carnivore because it's healthier or better. I eat carnivore mostly because it's easier, simpler, and we love to eat that way. But I've got plenty of patients who aren't. So it really is an evolution of who we are as individuals. And you can take that as far as you want to. But the absolutism of a carnivore diet is a setup for failure. I think that people, too, are there's this idea that you have to get on carnivore and then stay there forever. And I think that, you know, that's the message that they're hearing from a lot of people out there um, is that there's this ideal way of eating. You have to be long-term, but I'm like you, I can't, I'm carnivore long-term because it's kind of the only thing that it does keep me healthy, but it's the only thing that doesn't trigger me. I don't want simple carbohydrates and whole, I don't want sweet potatoes. I want loaded French fries. And so, you know, there are not too many foods that I can incorporate that aren't going to cause me to go off the rails and binge on sugar and other foods. Um, and I'm healthy enough doing carnivore. So there's no reason for me to try to force myself to go back to being normal. Like that was a really hard process of trying to say like, this is okay for me to stay in this place. And I don't have to force myself to try to have occasional berries and have those treats, you know, like, there's nothing broken about me because I can't go back and moderate those things. Yeah. And, and you know, Laura, I think a large part of this is the erroneous approach of diet, dietitians and diets. And the mo- for the most part, dietitians create a list of things you can't eat. Not allowed to have this. Not allowed. It's highly deprivational. And what we try to do is empower people with choices. I can eat carbohydrates anytime I want to. I can go to the store right now and buy ice cream and eat a tub. I choose not to. And I'm empowered by that. You know, when you talk to a vegan, a vegan doesn't say, oh, no, 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 I'm not allowed to eat meat. They're proudly vegan. And that's disgusting. How the (laughs) hell can you kill Bambi? So they are empowered by their veganism. And for the most part, people that have tried keto, people that have, they focus on what they're not allowed to have. Right. And the reason I say don't start carnivore is you want a broad enough range of things that you can have that you make your selection from what you can have and not worry about what you can't have. And if it's not in your mind, then it's not a problem. So uh, the, the unless it's like slapping you in the face. So the way I start most of my patients is I give them a broad range of things they can eat, any animal products, but also any vegetables. I don't care if they eat beans or carrots or peas. 
Uh, oh, but they got so many carbohydrates. Because um, when it comes to diet, the reason we got into trouble was not because of the carbohydrates in our food. The reason we got into trouble is because of our relationship with those carbohydrates as a form of emotional management. Nobody gets fat from eating some peas every now and then. There are plenty of peasant populations that subsist and exist on rice or potatoes or grain products. When that relationship alters and you start challenging your hormonal system and you start uh, getting your body to defend itself against this constant supply, that's when bad things happen. And the problem is, just like with alcohol, I drink alcohol, I'm not an alcoholic. Alcohol's not the problem. But if you are an alcoholic, that relationship is and always will be broken. So part of that first preamble about the uh, um, contemplation is, where am I with this relationship? And those three questions are asked allow you to see where you are with a relationship. Not everybody, that relationship is completely broken. And we'll talk about that in a second. But if it is, then start by eliminating the obvious big-time carbohydrates. The, uh, and, and that's kind of the staged approach. The drinks are the worst, and then some of the snacks and the lookalikes. And then the final part um, may be some of the starchy things as you evolve. So the migration toward carnivore is an evolution where you leave behind some of those starchy vegetables. But they shouldn't be a beginning point. And uh, the absolutes for me are no grains, which are the worst of the carbohydrates, in my opinion, from an inflammatory and an autoimmune perspective. And every mammal, every mammal, not just humans, has problems with grain products, even cows. Um, and then no potatoes and no rices, because those are the commonest starchy staples. But then within that, we can start migrating more toward carnivore as we desire to, as we choose to. But I've never met a fat person who had a really rough day and rushed home and picked out on Brussels sprouts. Go ahead. So what's tricky about what you said, and I fully agree with you, I, I think even when people are trying to reintroduce more foods in a meat-based or a meat-only diet, I think veggies and steamed veggies are probably the safest. It's probably not what people want to add first. They want to add fruits and other sugary things. Where I think it gets a little tricky is that like when I did keto, the 20 grams of carb, I was at eating the veggies. But then on some days, I'm like, well, if I can have 20 grams, I can have the Snickers. And that also fits my macros. Right, But that's, uh, Judy, let me just stop you for a second there. That's the whole dietary discipline, which is, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm a, neither of you are doctors, I don't think. So I'm going to use a medical word here. Absolute bullshit. Please <laughs> understand that. All that 20 grams and you allow this much. Right. Nobody treats an alcoholic with 20 grams of alcohol. Right, right. It It is... Uh, what, what we try to do is get people to make selections irrespective of carbohydrate volume. So if I'm going to eat peas, I'm going to eat peas. I, don't, I, have, I have no idea what the carbohydrate content is. But the other part is this is as we start. This is not once you're carnivore to reintroduce. That's uh, we'll, we'll talk about that sure. separately. But this is about the evolution. I'm this guy that's been eating pizza all my life. I live on Coke and m and I'm 300 pounds. I've got diabetes. I've had a heart attack. Uh, whatever those may be, how do I begin this journey? And I think it, the first step that you've got to look at, which most people ignore, take your age and subtract your age from 100. That's how long this has to last for. Right. And mm -hmm. most people cannot sustain a diet for longer than six to eight weeks. So if you approach this with dietary mentality, I have a, a statistic of 98% of diets, including carnivore and keto, fail. 
Uh, and they fail not because the diet is erroneous, but because the methodology is. Um, so we're talking about how to take people that walk through the door for the first time with awful health okay. and begin them to make some changes. And it's an evolution. And then the migration is, hey, I'm doing really well. I love this meat. Um, and you migrate that way. And we nudge and push them that way. But I'm not going to nudge somebody that way who's doing really, really well eating other things. We can talk about the move backwards, the Paul Saladino kind of methodology in a few minutes. There's value to that, but definitely, absolutely not in the beginning. Really what we're looking for to correct disease is to create insulin sensitivity. And the fastest therapeutic way to do that is with a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. And the first step is to get rid of itinerant emotional forms of eating. And then we slowly migrate to a more and more uh, um, strict zero carbohydrate way of life. I guess my, and, and I fully agree with you. So if someone is unhealthy and they're not even eating low carb, then I think keeping in the veggies may be a bridge. I don't know if that's the bridge they want, but. No, a bridge should be no calories. Okay. So vegetables, vegetables are part of a meal mm. so that, so that you've got capacity of choice. If I'm, all I'm eating is ribeye steak, there are a few authoritarian people that can start out that way, but most people can't. Most people, it's too strict, including myself. That's just too strict and, and it's just unsustainable. So we've got to look at, yes, it's a desire, but it shouldn't be my desire. It should be, what are my patients capable of? I'll, I'll give you an example of that, uh, Judy. I've got a number of Indian patients who all, are all diabetic and um, they just won't give up their rice. So I said, you know what? Keep your rice, but let's give everything else up. Let's give everything else up. Keep your rice. And every one of them have improved. Every one of them have moved toward insulin sensitivity. And you know what every one of them have done? They've given up their rice. But if you start out, we've got to give up the rice. And they just say, hell no, it's part of my culture. You've lost them before you've begun. Right. So I think what I'm talking about is not the nutritional approach. I'm talking about the humanistic approach. What are people capable of doing and how can they slowly change habits? Because remember, a habit is not something you break on a given day. It's something that, that happens. I call it thresholding. It takes a very long time to get to a point where the habit is no longer part of who you are. Evolving that is so important in for most people. Yeah, and that's fair. So when my parents, they have the traditional obese, um, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and my mom is obviously from Korea. So when I first told her you can't eat rice, it was it was shocking because for 60 years she's eaten rice. So I had to switch it to, okay, you can have half a cup of rice every few days. And that was more palatable, but now she doesn't eat rice. So you're right. It's that it's the mentality thing. And my mom has never had a food addiction where I that's something I struggled with. But even for her to say you can never touch rice again, that absolute almost made it, well, then I don't want to do this. The, the most empowering time is, and, and I use these words over and over and over again, when our patients over time choose not to eat something right. because it's their choice, they have ownership of it, and they're empowered by it. If I deprive them of it up front, it's miserable. And, and they will not sustain deprivation. Uh, they may do so for a long time. But as soon as life throws a curveball at them, and as long as they've got a pulse, life is going to throw curveballs at them, that mentality in the back of their head is going to drive them right back to carbohydrates of some form. So the removal and the replacement is so important. And we haven't even talked about building an effort-based emotion management system. But uh, allow people to choose, with guidance, 
to choose their pathway. You know, one of the one of the healthiest ways to raise a child is not to tell a child they must eat chicken or to ask a child, what do you want to eat? The right way to raise a child is say, would you like steak, chicken or shrimp tonight? And if they choose shrimp, but you're going to make, chimp, make chicken, make the shrimp. Because what you've done is you've, re- you've given them a wide range of choices with boundaries and you've affirmed to them that you respect their choice. That's not their choice. They have ownership of that. And they're going to feel good about eating that food. So that is called an authoritative way of raising a person or or, or of living your life. Rigid boundaries, but with latitude of choice within those boundaries. And if the boundary is we're not going to eat breads or grains, we're not going to eat potatoes, but we can have some rice, then they can choose whether or not they're going to have rice. And over time, they'll choose not to have it. So that methodology, because our patient population are either permissive or authoritarian. Those are the two groups that have vulnerability to addictive behavior. One is too rigid and too structured. One has no structure. And we kind of want them to come to the middle, dismantle structure on the authoritarians, and create structure for the permissives. And that's really the, the, the longevity of this depends on that level of structure. Sometimes I see clients where they are like, I only do well with the either the abstainer or the moderator. So just, I'm very black and white. I need to go all in. When I first work with them, they're already carnivore. But there was a particular client that I said, I think you should eat the safest plant foods. And we made a list that was much more realistic because every week he was falling and struggling. And then he would just go off and eat whatever he wanted. So then when we try to do that, I think he still had the mentality of, well, these are technically not so good foods. And then the leniency became more easy every single day. But how do I make that person who maybe would do better with just a limited amount of carbs rather than zero carbs? But when they do eat some of the carbs in their mind, they still think, oh, I'm kind of off plan. Right. Well, the first, the first also the erroneous way of thinking about a lot of vegetables is that most of them are unabsorbable by humans, even though if you analyze them in a laboratory, they have, cellulose have carbohydrates. One of the th- reasons why carnivore is an important component of diet, if not the diet of choice, um, is because human beings have lost the capacity to ferment in a symbiotic relationship with bacteria and funguses and viruses uh, to ferment cellulose actually into fatty acids. So basically, that just becomes poop. And it becomes fermented in our colon where it causes all kinds of trouble. So once you start talking about it in that way and people have certain GI issues, maybe some reflux or irritable bowel or they've had diverticulitis, then then it becomes obvious to them that this is not an ideal way of eating. But the reality is I call myself carnivore. If I'm going to order food in and it comes with a salad, that's a choice I'm comfortable making if I feel like it. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. So to be absolute is more of an authoritarian trigger. And a large part of the behavioral element is to get people to be less authoritarian. Where they And what does authoritarian mean? It means people live in um, a world that is governed by perfectionism, not by the effort they put in. And there's they're always feeling a sense of failure, a sense of not good enough. And we really have to empower people to feel really proud of their choices. And if you're proud of your carnivore choice and you don't feel deprived, it's easy. It becomes a simple way of life. But allowing people reasonable choices that doesn't cause a crash and burn uh, is okay. And then the other the other piece also, and, and this is – so you mentioned the carnivore veterans, which is the word I stole from you from the last time, and I use that liberally now 
Um, it wasn't my is, word, but yes. <laughs> well, but it's, it, I got it from you, and therefore it's your word <laughs> to me. And I, I just love that statement because we've not we've got a huge. I mean, I've got several thousand carnival veterans that we're tracking and following. Those are people that have chosen that way of life, but they've been that way for more than two to three years, and they're fastidious. Even those folks at some point start migrating away. There are very, very few people that are absolute carnivore once they've gone through that evolution. And the question is, how do we, and and actually it is the right thing to do, and I'll come back to that in a second, but how do we give those people guidance based on who they are so that they don't get into trouble? And, you know, if you've been obese, if you've had diabetes, if you've had what I call an addictive personality, um, and how do I define addiction? When you've had a relationship with sugar and starch to the point of measurable harm, and you've ignored or distorted the reality of the harm to continue the relationship, that relationship is broken and never will be broken. But just uh, on Friday, I had a Korean lady. Um, she has a, an intestinal problem, but the highest she's, she's five foot one, the highest she's ever weighed is 115 pounds. Right. She's never really had a tangible, addictive relationship with carbohydrates. So for her, we migrated her more to a carnivore way of eating because of health issues, not because of addiction issues. And for her, we will give her some carbohydrates to trigger insulin because she is using this for a therapeutic GI reason, not because she's insulin resistant. Does that make sense? It's her biome that's the issue. But for the majority of people, they're insulin resistant. So the first thing is to use a carnivore approach is the strictest of the therapeutic approaches. But what we're seeing is we're now seeing, as we talked about a little while ago, and I don't want to do a deep dive into this, people going from insulin sensitivity to insulin repression when they stay in that therapeutic mode, and then we have to bring them back. Well, some people can follow Paul Saladino where they eat a little bit of fruit and they eat a little bit of honey because like that Korean lady, they haven't been addicts. I know there's no way on God's earth I can allow myself to do that. So where do I get my carbohydrates from? I get them from dairy, and I get them occasionally from avocados or tomatoes. So those are the places where I'll get them. Every now and then, I'll get them from some vegetables, maybe once every few weeks. But I need that insulin trigger. I've got right now on me my CGM. I want to see a little rise and a drop in my blood sugar from time to time, because insulin is a crucially important hormone, not by energy standards, but insulin governs human growth hormone, conversion of T4 to T3, all the steroid hormones and vitamin D is a steroid hormone, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, and it governs cholesterol production. So all these carnivores, these LMHRs with very, very high LDL, it's because they have no insulin response. And once we have an insulin response, we can bring that down. That's talk for another day. And we've got proof to that. So what we're really talking about, though, is introduction. And I think the introduction can be stepwise based on what that person is capable of. So if they come in already carnivore, I can help them to tweak that. But if they come in standard American, I want to evolve that slowly. And it's tailor-made, if that makes sense. Yeah, Judy and I talk about how most people end up around that, like, 90% carnivore. Everybody who says they're carnivores, long-term, they're like, I'm 90% carnivore because they found a few things that they can introduce 
that are happy for them. I naturally ended up carnivore just because over time you realize that, oh, a big salad doesn't make me feel good and I can cut that out and I can't handle the keto treats and I cut those out. And so you end up in this place, I think, spending some time once you've gotten over needing those other foods, right? Again, low carb tortillas, I needed those in the beginning to get me off of all the regular stuff. Once I spent a time being carnivore, I think people then can realize what can they handle, what can they have? And somebody like myself and you, I know we've, we share this, that I can't handle fruits. I can't handle honey uh, and those types of things. Um, so you mentioned earlier though, people around most diets fail around the six to eight week mark. And I'm kind of the same way I could do anything for that amount of time, but in the tens of thousands of clients that you work with that are all looking to, you know, most of them are trying to, um, overcome some sort of obesity, metabolic issues. How, how are you seeing ways that they can keep that going? What's the momentum that happens or how do they build up? You know, the question that Judy and I, and most of us get is like, I, how do I stay on track? I keep falling off the wagon. Like, what are some ways that you see people put together successful things to push some longevity with this? Right. So, so I think the the biggest shift of everything is almost every dietitian focuses on what people eat, and we've indoctrinated our population to consider what they're eating. What you're eating has very, very small importance. The question is, why are you doing it? And if you can connect people to why they're eating a certain thing at a certain time, does this thing truly represent nutritional advantage to me or am I eating this because of some emotional event? And helping people to understand why their patterns are like they are. And the simple, the simple pattern recognition, everybody understands smoking or alcoholism. And if we make those analogies, that helps tremendously. So we evolve the diet slowly over time by choice, but at the same time, we have to arm people with a set of things that they can do that are visible to them that they have no intent of doing, but when they see it, they do it. What do I mean by that? Most of most snacking is number one because we put it in our environment. And I think the snacking is possibly even worse than what we eat at meals. Most yeah. dietitians just focus on meals, but the snacking is ignored it isn't even considered it isn't even thought of uh just as an anecdote i i've given this anecdote a few times but a few years ago i was flying to seattle and i was on a plane next to a guy and he was a big man and he saw me doing my obesity talk and we started chatting about obesity it's a four and a half hour flight and the flight attendant comes along with this little basket of crystal meth crack cocaine and heroin and um he reaches over and grabs those little biscottis uh, you know, the little cinnamon biscottis, and I'm having black coffee. So we're chatting, and every 20 minutes she's there, he grabs another one, she's filling up my coffee. And we're chatting, and at the end of the flight, we're getting off, and I said, by the way, how many of these do you eat? And he said, ah, you know, I, I just had one. I know I counted he had eight. Wow. Now, the, the thing about it is everyone said, oh, he was lying. He wasn't lying. He had no idea. That was opportunistic, and it was institutionalized. If she wasn't offering that stuff, he would have been fine. But because it was there, he used that opportunity to consume it. He knew he had them, but he had no idea how much. And I'll tell you how I know that. I have no idea how much coffee I drank. I know every time she came by, she poured my coffee, but I have no idea how much I drank. I know that I did it because it's what I do, but I have no idea how much. And, and so to understand snacking and the behavior behind snacking is so important. So 
one of the one of the early things that we help people to do is understand why they're doing something right now. And I've got a little phrase that is a snack is always, always, always an emotion event. And the reason I made a graphic about that, the three years ago, I heard you say that. And it was a huge light bulb for me. I made a meme. I posted it on my Instagram several years ago, big moment. So thank you for that. exact phrase. (laughs) Thank you. But we, but you know, the sad, the, the interesting thing, Laura, is we have to have a snack. In other words, what a snack represents is a little mind cleansing moment. So, and what we do is we create a space where we always have them around us. I always used to have M&Ms and a can of Coke around me, or they're in the fridge or in the pantry and we're bored or we're stressed or whatever it is. And we're migrating toward that thing that is visible. It becomes a habituated pathway. So one of the things I ask my patients to do is in your home or on your desk, put something in your local environment that is there to do or consume that does not cause harm. That First of all, that's where the bridge drink comes in. I've got coffee in my hand right now. Um, but the second thing is, if you walk into my house, my dog's leash and my walking shoes are right at the front door. I've got a big, right now, we just changed it. It's a 2,000-piece puzzle on my dining room table. I've got a deck of cards on my dining room table. I've got my favorite Sudoku puzzle next to my favorite chair. I've got a little spade, little trowel. And we live in Florida. It's not winter here where I can go outside and do some weeding. So those are triggers. So I may be walking from my bedroom to the fridge. Oh, let me stop and put one little piece of the puzzle in. Nobody goes to the fridge to eat a tub of ice cream. Nobody goes to the pantry to eat a big bag of chips. We go to the pantry to have a little bite of ice cream, just a taste. We go for one cookie. We go for one chip. And we end up eating the whole bag, the whole tub. That's addiction. So instead, when I'm walking past that that puzzle, I'm going to put one little piece of the puzzle in. And half an hour later, I'm still standing there putting pieces of the puzzle in. It's giving me the mind-cleansing moment I need. It could be one piece. It could be half an hour. It doesn't matter. But the key is my fridge and my pantry have to be devoid of snacky type things, at least carbohydrate containing snacks, but they should be filled with six or eight or 10 different things that I can drink that are all sugar free, even though the the internet says they're not good for me. So when I open that fridge, do I want a Diet Coke? Do I want some water? Do I want some coffee? Do I want a Fresca? You've altered your mindset and you're entrenching that as a, okay, let me decide about what I can have. Remember the boundaries with choice? I've got a Diet Coke in my fridge that's been there for five years. I don't like Diet Coke, but it's there because I see it. And I say, okay, I can have you, but it makes me feel good when I say I'm not going to have you. I'm going to have some water. So it's the it's the power of replacement that people don't understand for the longevity. Because you cannot snack on every good day. It's very, very easy to not snack on a good day. But when you're exhausted and life has thrown you a curveball, You're doing bad things to yourself. And what I tell everybody is I'm far more proud of a five-minute walk with my dog on a really bad day than I am for an hour-long run on an easy day. But Because that's where the emotional restitution comes from. Does that make sense? I started crocheting at night because I didn't know what to do with my hands while watching TV without eating. And it took me a year and a half to kind of break that habit. And so those physical moments really made a huge difference. And I think that's why I started struggling so much in 2020. I went from traveling full-time, working out of the office. I had fixed all of my afternoon snacking behaviors in the office. And then all of a sudden I was home hundred percent of the time. And the break between meetings led me walking to the fridge. And even though my non-negotiable is stay carnivore, right? But the slices of cheese 
15 times a day add up. You know, I'm one of those people that without those emotional or those boundaries on my emotional eating, I can very easily gain weight on carnivore. It doesn't matter what that is. And so finding and I think, Let me just habit- stop you for a second there. That is so important to understand because yeah. the reason I use calories when it comes to snacks, and I don't ever use the word calories outside of this, is that people justify snacking, doing what I call drive-bys yeah. when it's pepperoni or cheese. Oh, it's carnivore. It's okay. No, it's not. It's calories for your head. And unless you are so skinny that you need to gain a little bit of weight, that's not a good idea. So that's exactly the point that you made there is that people condone that act of snacking. That's why I focus so heavily on that. doesn't matter what it is. It's calories for your head. And a bridge is something that does not contain calories, but still for your head. So so that's a crucial thing. Yeah. This is a little side note too, and then I'll let Judy talk. Um, the this is what I say when people talk about switching their kids over. I'm like, kids don't have to be perfect all the time. They're not reversing all this metabolic damage, and hopefully, I'm fostering this healthy relationship with food. Right? As in, we went to In and Out yesterday, and I said, okay, you can pick a bun, fries, or a milkshake. You don't need all three. Which one of those three do you want? And they picked a milkshake, and so they had bunless burgers with me. But again, no kids need snacks. Kids don't need to be snacking all day long when they eat three proper meals a day they aren't needing those behaviors. I'm trying to help correct that in my kids early on. So they're not finding those. They're bored today. They asked me for a snack today. They haven't had snacks in years. Like they don't, they know they don't get snacks, but they're sitting around bored because we haven't left the house. So anyway, that's exactly right. So I think it's emotional, right? If you can raise a child, if they're going to eat carbohydrates, it should purely be for a treat. It shouldn't be a staple. Right. And should not, we want to separate nutrition from, uh, uh, something we do for a buzz. Nobody considers alcohol to be something we drink for hydration. There's a sharp divide between alcohol for pleasure and water and other fluids for hydration. We haven't yet created the same separation that I believe we should between carbohydrates and food. That's why when people say food addiction, I correct them, it's not possible. Nobody's addicted to water, nobody's addicted to food. It's alcohol and carbohydrates. And if you look at them in the same arena, that's the easy way to go. The other, just, uh, I know Judy wants to say something, but I just want to, because I'm I'm older than both of you combined, it it leaves my head. Um, You brought up something that really triggered something I'm very passionate about. Um, and we haven't talked directly about it, but all this, you said crochet. Okay, how many calories do you burn crochet? Probably none, okay? Right. But it is an incredible uh, alternative, healthier alternative to snacking. So too many people focus on exercise. If you've never been somebody that has done exercise, why the hell should you start that now? It is ridiculous. But everybody has something that in their previous life or in their historic lives is a highlight, part of, has become part of their DNA in terms of effort-based emotional restitution. So for some people, physical activity is their thing. If they grew up playing sport, they played collegiate sport, and then they let it go. Uh, but for a lot of people, it could be something creative. It could be your crocheting. It could be music. It could be art. It could be gardening. It could be cooking, not baking, but cooking. So it could be spirituality or meditation. It could be human connection. Don't tell people they have to exercise. That's ludicrous. Tell them yeah. to find something that's within their own lives that's enjoyable and to resurrect that. 
If you've loved to play the guitar, but you haven't played it for 100 years, go dig it out of the cupboard, put it on your favorite chair, and go and play two chords. And you'll find half an hour later you're playing. But if you force people to exercise, and it's not part of who they are, you might as well ask them to play the trumpet. And there's no way I'm ever going to play the trumpet. So, you know. That's how I figured. That's how I got back on track in 2020. I picked up paint by numbers, you know, and I taped it to the wall instead of put it on the table to give myself a crink in my neck. But so I would stand and between meetings, instead of walking to the fridge, I would walk over and spend three minutes and paint a little square and then go back to my meeting. And it's just that moment of like being able to walk away, give yourself that break, do something standing. And, and that was, I think, kind of my saving grace. I, I kind of joked that I needed to find a hobby, something that just kept me from wandering uh, to the But it's, it's not even a hobby. It's the little mind-cleansing moment. So if you are yeah. going to use exercise, don't go and tell someone they have to do HIIT training and go to the gym for an hour. That's crazy, especially if you're fat. But tell them, you know what? Park your car three spaces further away. Take that little, those two or three stairs up instead of the elevator or the escalator. Um, Carry your bag when, you, when you're at a store. Carry a basket when you're at the store instead of rolling a cart. There are opportunities to be physically active, to have a physically active awareness, whether you stick your paint by numbers against the wall and you stand to do it. Um, and as you create a culture within your own life of little moments of physical activity, where it's just trying to stand out of your chair without using your hands, stupid, silly little things, because that's empowering. There is a reward attached to that without any hardship. And, and it's, it's silly little things that matter. I call them my currency is two M&Ms. The same high I used to get from two M&Ms, I now get from crossing my legs, from standing up out of a chair without using my hands, from those little, little things, from putting one piece of a puzzle in, from dealing a game of cards with my wife. Those are the things that fill our little mind-cleansing space. And what we need is diversity. And if there's a diversity of those things, a little spiritual connection, hey, man, I'm having a rough day. Or, hey, man, I'm really proud of what I did. Hear me out for a second. That's what matters. Because this is not about weight or about, it's about emotional restitution. And we're using sugar and starch as a surrogate for healthy emotional restitution. Yeah. Everyone's talking about mental health, mental health. Men this is mental health. Right. This is what we're talking about. I think it's really good that you bring up the mental cleansing because a lot of what we're talking about is really changing environment, changing the pairing, right? So a lot of people are used to um, habits of just running on autopilot in the evenings. We've made so many decisions. And so then by night, we're watching TV, we're just grazing on foods. And so if that's something that we do, we may not have to necessarily change the TV. Maybe we have to for a little bit, but it's the pairing. So if I'm not going to be snacking like Laura, you could do crocheting, but it's something that the mind um, has to, to, I guess, take a break, um, have the mind cleanse. It's really just in those moments where you feel that emotional duress, it's having something else to turn to. And I think that's where this is so important because the pandemic had everyone so stressed out that the last thing they cared about is if they were to now reintroduce a bunch of carbs because they didn't have that solidified thing that they turn to. No, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, uh, we started out talking about how to get people engaged. This is about rookies starting out their journey, not about the veterans. And I think that's the, the focus. But really, the focus is helping people to understand why their pattern of eating looks this way that made them sick. And how do we change it? You know, um, if you look at general weight gain or, or body weight, um, 
I just gave a talk about this. Body weight is always hormonally driven. So if you're a growing child, it's human growth hormone. If you're a bodybuilder, um, it is uh, uh, hormonally driven. If you're a distance athlete, it's uh, it's hormonally driven. If you've had a bad injury like a burn, you're eating three or four times the amount of calories to to recover from that burn. That is a hormonally driven need. So it is driven by demand, by cellular demand that is created by hormonal flux. Obesity is the only disease that is supply-driven. And we oversupply by eating for the emotional value, not the nutritional value. So this calculation of how much we should eat is absolute garbage because because it's demand-driven when it's food. But when you're consuming, so for example, when you're consuming water, nobody ever needs to know how much water they need to drink. And nobody should ever tell you how much water you drink because nobody knows. All this, you've got to drink 64 gallons of water a day, absolute garbage. But your body knows exactly how much water you need to drink. So if you offer it water, it'll say, I'm thirsty, I need water. And it will stop you dead in its tracks when you've had enough. However, when it comes to drinking beer, and I've done this experiment, I can drink 24 bottles of beer at a time when by volume equivalent, I can only drink one or two or maybe three bottles of water. And then I shut down because what alcohol does is it creates that endorphin hit. And the more you consume, the higher you get because it's not necessary for human survival. And therefore, the human body has no hormonal negative feedback pathway for alcohol. Puking and and passing out is not hormonal feedback. That's toxicity. So, And what we've got to understand, why am I talking about that? Because exactly the same exists with regards to carbohydrates. When it comes to eating fat and protein, there are a number of feedback hormonal responses when it particularly comes to eating fat, but amino acids as well, that say, I've had exactly enough and you can't eat more, even though what you eat is a huge amount. So for my carnivore, I'll say, okay, sit down. I'm going to give you an 84-ounce ribeye steak. How much can you eat? No idea. No idea because nobody knows. But the reason I said 84 is there's nobody out there that can crush an 84-ounce steak in one go because the body won't let you. But you can eat that steak. I've had 20 ounces, 30 ounces, 40 ounces. Oh, God, I'm stuffed. 10 minutes later, you're not sitting in front of the TV eating more steak, but you are sitting there with a bowl of M&Ms, a bag of chips, some pretzels. You're snacking because there is no limit to carbohydrates. The the fat and the protein is very tightly controlled, but the carbohydrates are not controlled except in a perseverant way. So carbohydrates, like alcohol, are uniquely supply-driven. They are not demand-driven. There is no demand shut-off. Does that make sense? Mm. Okay. So one is controlled hormonally. The other one is in excess of that hormonal control. And what people need to understand is that that chronic excess completely flatlines your hormones. So now you're getting resistance by your cells to protect themselves. So you're becoming insulin-resistant and glucagon-driven. And that creates that ongoing need. So you're not able to use in a flux way the correct, uh, uh, the correct nutrients. And that is where the damage occurs. The damage is not caloric damage because you can eat a hell of a lot of steak and fat and still be lean. The damage is done when the hormonal feedback system is disrupted. So obesity is a hormonal disease, not a caloric disease. 
And it's so difficult for people to understand that concept. That's why it's exclusively carbohydrates that make us fat. We don't get fat from fat and protein. And and it's such an important concept for people to understand. Judy, you know when you're talking to these carnivores. I mean, I, I had a guy, again, I just referred to Friday because I see them every day. This guy's eating, he's BMI is, I think, 18 or 19. So he's actually underweight. But this guy's eating one and a half to two pounds of ground beef for lunch and six eggs. That's his average uh, lunch. And then for dinner, he's doing the same thing. I can't eat that much. And he can't gain weight. He's eating a ton of calories. If that was carbohydrates, he'd be enormous or diabetic. So it's not about calories. It's about what, what those calories do to our hormones. And most human beings don't understand that. That's why the therapeutic approach is to cut out the carbohydrates at first, sequentially, until they're gone, and until that hormonal flux returns, that negative feedback system returns. Then, once you've established that, then we have to change the diet to be more consistent with one that keeps you healthy, that is not just a therapeutic prescription. And too many people stay in the therapeutic mode for too long. They overcorrect. There are some people on the carnivore diet that even after a year, maybe a year and a half, they are still overweight. And they say that, hey, I'm zero carb, essentially carnivore, and I am not really losing the weight. And some people eat really, really um, small amounts. Right. Correct. But they're not. You see, here's the key thing. And I, I've got plenty of people like that. They are not gaining significant weight. They may say, oh, well, I gained three pounds. Sure. Three or four pounds for me is a bowel movement. That's not weight gain or weight loss. OK. Um, nobody is going to gain 50 or 60 pounds on um, uh, on meat and fat unless they're adding to that bodybuilding or something else. Um However, so fat won't fat and protein won't make you fat. However, it may prevent you from losing weight because one of the key things that people also need to understand this is why the the BS of of calories is that when the body is defending itself from carbohydrate excess, it uses something called futile cycles. Futile cycles is where the body is burning off tons of energy because it's trying to get rid of the excess. So you're peeing it out, you're pooping it out, you're burning it off. Your body's releasing oxalic acid, not oxalates from the diet from vegetables. The body doesn't work that way. It's reduced, it's releasing oxalic acid from the Krebs cycle. Oxalic acid is, an, is a part of the Krebs cycle. And those are going into your bloodstream and you're trying to pee those out. They crystallize in your urine and cause kidney stones. It's production. It's the body desperately defending itself from this tsunami of carbohydrates. So, when the body does that, um, you need probably around, let's say, I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let's say the average person needs 2,000 calories of a standard American diet, which is anywhere from 70 to 70 to 80% carbohydrate, some protein and some fat, in order to perform a certain amount of work where they are weight neutral. Well, the same person when they fat adapted, when their cells, the cells that can have a choice, prefer ketones or fat over sugar, for the same metabolic performance, they probably only need 800 to 1,000 calories. So if that carb-addicted person early on drops their caloric consumption to 1,500 calories, they're losing 500 calories a day. La, 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 I'm losing weight. And so everybody that starts a keto diet will lose some weight, but then they rapidly get stranded and they level off because as they begin to shift that hormonal manure, now their daily requirement is lower. 
So if you're still eating 15, if I eat 1500 calories a day, I'm actually going to be gaining some weight. Now, my body won't allow me to do that over a period of time, but that's where the weight stabilizes. Does that make sense? So the hack there, the trick there is to do protein sparing, to cut the fat out of your diet, to relaunch you into um, uh, metabolic deficiency. So what happens is your cells are so fat adapted when you become stranded and you're heading toward insulin sensitivity or are already insulin sensitive, but you can't lose weight. If for a few days you cut the fat out, so you go lean protein, the Maria Emmerich, the Ted Naiman type PE ratio, um, what you're doing then is you're using protein to generate an insulin response. And most people say, well, I did it for a week. It didn't work. Of course, it's not going to work because your bodies are not attuned to it. You've got to get that, create that change. But over the course of two or three months, it sucks to only eat lean protein because you feel miserable, but you drop the weight again. The guy that also talked about this was Andreas Enfeld. And Andreas Enfeld is a six foot seven stick, but he lost about eight to 10 pounds just by doing protein sparing. So you can stay within the carnivore realm and create an insulin trigger to use up the sugar that gets, that gets made from excess protein. So a calorie is not a calorie when it comes to this intervention. And we've got to get away completely from thinking that way. But there are hacks to introduce fat uh, weight loss by cutting out the fat for short periods of time. When, when you look at the emotional side of things then, so we know we can lever fat and protein as far as weight loss or gain and, and to help with digestion and things. But when we look at the emotional side, I mean, from your personal experience, right, you and I agree, I'm not somebody who could ever incorporate something like fruits, but there are people who kind of go strict carnivore and then talk about healing their eating disorders, which is an incredible thing, right? And then they're able to kind of overcome a lot of those things. Why do you, is it truly just an addiction as to why some of us still, I mean, you could hand me a pint of ice cream and obviously I'm choosing not to eat that, but there's nothing inside of me that doesn't want that. And that you know, people say, I, I have it. I don't even look at that. Like it's food anymore. And I look at a donut and it looks, it just looks like garbage and toxic seed oils. No, a donut looks freaking amazing. And I will never not want to smell it. And I choose not to eat it. And that's empowering. But like, why is it that some of us still struggle with that emotional side of things versus, you know, there's a lot of people and maybe they're just the louder people who talk about like, Oh, I'm fixed. It's easy. It's perfect. I can be strict and it's it's no problem anymore. And it makes me feel very broken to be in that place where the weekly cookie store that's in town here that changes their flavors every week, I know what their flavors are. I've never had them, but I tell you, I know what their flavors are because there's a part of me that like needs to know what they are and then needs to choose not to have it. But I really want to know what the flavors are. <laughs> like. But- and, and, you know, Laura, one of the things I tell people is in addiction management, nobody's successful the first time. Nobody's successful the first time. We come into this very arrogant, very, uh, uh, I've got this, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this, this is easy. So we are arrogant about it, but very inexperienced. And we do great for a while. And then something happens and we crash. And it's usually some sort of external disruption to our uh, a normal way of life, to our daily way of life. You go on a vacation, somebody dies, something happens, COVID happens. There's a trigger, an emotional trigger for that. But here's the key thing about addiction and, and where carbohydrate addiction or, or diet 
methodology is different than other addictions and it shouldn't be. When you're smoking and you quit smoking for a while and then you go back to smoking, the only way forward is to quit smoking again and again and again. And every time you quit, you quit, it's with greater experience, but greater humility. And it's that experience together with the humility that gets you to eventually quit permanently. Okay, I'm going to leave that there for a second. When it comes to obesity, people are looking at the weight. They're not looking at carbohydrate addiction. And everybody that comes to see me is an expert at failing weight loss programs. So, oh, this diet didn't work. Oh, this diet didn't work. Oh, that thing didn't work. Oh, I can beat Weight Watchers. So they've tried all these different diets that are forms of all of them, even keto is primarily seen as a version of caloric reduction. It isn't seen as a drug elimination program. It's a caloric source. And so when people fail the first time, they don't get up and try again. They do something different. And the objective is to lose weight. The objective is not to rid themselves of an addictive relationship. So when when I, in way back, uh, when I first meet people, I tell them, look, you're going to do great for a little while, and then you're going to screw it up. You're going to screw it up completely. I'm 23 years in. I've had multiple relapses, and a relapse for me is more than 30 pounds. So it happens. There's a tub of ice cream in my fridge tonight. I'm 23 years in. I guarantee I'll eat it, but I also guarantee you it's not there tonight. So the point is that when you first educate your patients, tell them, look, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw up. Everybody does, okay, at some point. And what you want to do is own that mistake. It's OAC. Own the mistake as soon as you can. And the only way to own a mistake is if it is binary. If There's never, ever, ever, ever a valid reason for an alcoholic to have a drink. There's never, ever, ever a valid reason for a fat person to eat a carbohydrate. And if that, if that is the case, then I don't care if it's your birthday or if Aunt Tilly made you a cake or whatever it is. It's a mistake. And we want to objectify the mistake. Because what we do is, oh, I'm a terrible person. I made this mistake. And we've got this wonderful way of rationalizing and minimizing and trivializing mistakes to the point they didn't even happen. It's just a bite of a cookie I got right on the next day. I was traveling. No, it was a mistake. Objectify it. Because if you subjectify it, you've got to make excuses to yourself. I made this mistake. I can't fix it. But what were the circumstances that led to it? And the next time I'm in the same situation... What corrective action plan can I implement now to protect me from that mistake the next time? Mm-hmm. So we always go to people's homes for a, for a buffet for Thanksgiving. And I go in there, and again, it's my crystal meth, crack cocaine, heroin, and I got myself into trouble. This was 16, 17 years ago. So recently I've said to my wife is, you get my food, I'll get your food. So I recognized where the vulnerability was. I owned the mistake, and we came up with a CAPA corrective action plan. So I'm not going to make that same mistake again. And that's why I say with greater experience, you learn to counter your mistakes. So that's the first part. The second reason is that I don't care what addiction you have, whether it's carbohydrates, whether it is alcohol, whether it is nicotine, whether it's crystal meth, crack cocaine, heroin, every addict knows they can be sober 40 years. You ask that alcoholic, what would happen if you drank a glass of wine? They're drinking again. They know that. They understand that. And there's been their past where they did make that mistake. But now they've chosen not to make it. And it's been so long, it is so unimportant in their lives that it doesn't bother them. Does that make sense? But we don't follow the same algorithm. 
And the problem, as you said, Laura, is that carbohydrates are ubiquitously available. They're every. You go into buy a toilet seat at Home Depot, and you've got to go through this wall of Coke and chocolates and chips and candy. They're throwing it on our face all the time. So it's difficult to unsee that. But at the same time, if your mindset is appropriate, that you're empowered by this, you can leave that alone. Does that make sense? I think what's also hard is that it's not like this message that's agreed upon with everyone. Within the carnivore community, you just mentioned a few names, but within that community, they say you need carbs for thyroid health long term. And so the rationalization then when we are weak or we are desiring carbohydrates becomes, well, I maybe I need it. And that's why I'm feeling low energy. Or maybe it's okay. Dr. So-and-so said it's fine. And that's where I think your mind starts playing tricks on you or you start justifying and stuff. Because there is no, I would say, consensus of what is ideal foods to eat, um, depending on the person you're listening to. You're absolutely right. You know, my colleague Gary Taubes has a great saying. You probably know who Gary is. Gary says, my dogma is not your dogma. I have mm-hmm. failed your dogma and it never will work for me. Mm-hmm. So under those constraints, addiction, as I said, I've defined it before, if that is you, and I think, Laura, you and I resonate with that, there's just no way that we are comfortable giving ourselves that permission. And it still happens from time to time, but we correct it very quickly and we get back on track very quickly. So it's not like, like the addicts never The only people that never eat carbohydrates are those wonderful people on the internet with long blonde beards and long blonde hair. No, nobody is that guy. So all the people that say I never do something, they're lying to you in themselves. Um, However, because everybody, including myself, I am human, I make mistakes. I have a recovery protocol in place to recover very quickly from those mistakes. And I've surrounded myself with people that are stronger than me to keep me safe. However, there are people that have never been in my situation. And Paul Saladin is one of those. I mean, Paul is a ridiculously looking specimen. Um, you know, he wears his white coat naked, uh, literally, if you watch him on Instagram. So, you know, he's got his abs have abs. Okay. Um, so Paul has never been me. And he advocates for carbohydrates in exactly the right, for the right reason, you need to trigger insulin. But he can have a little bit of honey, a little bit of fruit to trigger insulin. A guy like Zach Bitter, who's a 100-mile marathon athlete, never had a problem with uh, weight or carbohydrates. He'll eat carbohydrates. He has to eat carbohydrates on his runs. You know, the guy's running 100 miles, okay? Uh, I don't think I've run that in my lifetime. (laughs) Exactly right. I mean, So the, the point is there are certain circumstances where carbohydrates are necessary or have huge value. But the, what the overriding part is, can you tolerate them? Can you keep the boundaries on? So no, I can't. I cannot do that. But I can get my carbohydrate trigger from a few sources. The one source is lean protein. And I use those that protein sparing. I add that into my daily cycle to trigger insulin. The the thing that I will fight everybody about is dairy. And even more so now when we understand the value and the necessity of medium chain triglycerides in our diet for brain health. And I can I, we can talk about that. This is new information for me. It's been around for a while, but I'm heavily focused um, on sources of MCT for brain health, particularly for pregnant mothers 
for children up to the age of five, and then for anybody who has a history of Alzheimer's in their family, like I do. I've got an Apple E4 gene. I've got a mother and a grandmother. Grandmother died, mother died. Uh, so dairy is another wonderful source of sugar protected by fat, as are, for example, non-carnivore avocados. Nobody pigs out on avocados. And I don't pig out on too much cheese. If you do, that's a problem. But the reason why dairy is important is because all milk from whatever animal has uh, medium chain triglycerides, ketogenic triglycerides that the human brain needs to function. And I'm very opposed personally to ketones in a bottle. Okay, that's just that's just how I work. You can get them from a bottle. This is a sample I have on my desk. But um, uh, I'm not. I like to get my stuff from my food. So dairy gives me two things. It gives me my ketones and it gives me my sugar, protecting me because it's laden with fat, protecting me from that sugar high. So there are places, but not everybody likes dairy. There are people that really get upset with dairy. Don't eat it. That's a choice. But for someone like myself, there are places I can get an insulin response triggered by sugar, either produced by my liver or consumed. An avocado has about, on average, 12 grams of sugar in it. That's a pretty decent amount. So, and I've got an avocado tree. Why don't I use them from time to time? Am I breaking my structure of a carnivore? I don't care. Right. I don't care about that because that's something that in the longitudinal nature of my life, that's necessary. My baby who's 17 months old, who started out life as an embryo, as a carnivore embryo, is 95% carnivore, but he gets a bottle of milk with some added heavy cream because in this country, for some reason, we suck the fat off the darn milk. <laughs> whole milk is not whole milk in right. this country. So we add the fat back, and he gets a little bit of krill oil. Um, the same tablet, the only supplement I take is a little uh, krill oil. I squeeze that into his milk bottle every day because his brain is somewhat important. And um, Alzheimer's prevention, same story. So you know, we demonize things because they're not uh, considered to be strict, 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 rigid carnivore. And I think in the longitudinal side, we've got to give people some of those choices so that they can be as healthy as they need to be. When, you when say- it comes down, I think, sorry, the distinction you made about the cheese, I can have cheese within the context of my meal and it works great. But the minute that I introduce it as that emotional snacking event is when I completely go off the rails, right? And right. so that I think is where we have to know why are we eating that food like right. you mentioned. Exactly right. I mean, I can tell you that berries are a great source of uh, a trigger for insulin. But if there's berries in my house, I've done this experiment and failed it. I do drive-bys. And, and for that reason, berries are not there. Nuts perform the same thing. So uh, there are nuts in my house because I can eat them as my food. I don't snack on them. But berries absolutely know, not because they're not good for me, not because they don't cause that sugar spike, which is what I'm looking at, not the sugar spike, the insulin spike, but I can't trust myself with them in the house because I'll be going back and forth to that fridge and it's a little bit here, a little bit there, whatever it is, it's gone very, very quickly. So, uh, you know, we've got to know ourselves and understand within the range of the, the principle is I need an insulin spike. I need an insulin spike at mealtimes. Where is the safest place for me to get that? And, and that is what the advanced people like Judy, like myself, should be. And I've only started doing this in the last year or two once I understood insulin suppression. Because I always thought insulin resistant, insulin, insulin sensitivity, insulin sensitive, Yahoo. But 
what I found is that that insulin can get so low that your cells are so full of fat, they don't make a demand for sugar. Now, what the hell do you do with the sugar that comes from your liver? It rises your blood sugar, and then it has to be turned to fat. So now triglycerides are going up, A1C is going up, uric acid is going up from the protein, and it's a bad picture. Uh, LDL is going through the roof. Not that I'm worried about LDL at all, but it's because we've become so fat adapted. The, the phrase I use is become a Tesla in a gas station. I, yeah. I just think that most people don't end up getting there because I think when certain people are getting healthier, let's say within a year of carnivore, a year and a half, and they don't have the symptoms that they had prior to going to carnivore, then they naturally start adding other things because they want the reintroduction, right? The rest of the world is yeah. eating so many plant-based foods. Why not? Now that I'm healing, why can't I try a little bit of sweet potato or why can't I try a little bit of steamed broccoli or a little bit of fruit? So I think most people don't fall there, but you're right. There might be a certain population of people that eat zero carb meat only for years on end, and maybe they don't need to be that strict and maybe they need to have some more flexibility. But, but you see, geez, let me just stop you for a second there. I, I agree that people migrate, but the three of us can help them based on who they are right. as to where to migrate. Because you're right, some of them will say, oh, uh, uh, um, Paul said, have some honey. Now they've gained 20 pounds and they're eating ice cream again. Right. Laura and I can't do that. So right. we have to help our uh, um, addicted population understand, or our type 2 diabetics understand, no, don't do that. Um, because it's a slippery slope. There are people out there that can do that, but we've got to figure out a safe way for people to migrate back to some carbohydrates, either in, either produced by the liver from protein or consumed. And my preference for most of my patients is production. So staying kind of carnivore and not going to the berries or the fruit or the, or the honey, um, and certainly not the, the sweet. There's no difference between a sweet potato and a baked potato. Um, they're all kind of the same thing. And, you know, we've got to also look at where the damage was done originally. Some people have tremendous GI upset from carbohydrates. And, and they don't have to be fat or not. Some people are enormous. Some people have diabetes, which is a vascular carbohydrate injury. Obesity is an intracellular carbohydrate injury. And some people have fibromyalgia or joint problems. That is an interstitial problem. So um, excess carbohydrates affect different people based on their genetics in different spaces. And we've got to understand what's happening over there. So, uh, you know, some people just can't tolerate milk products. That's fine. But don't tell someone they mustn't consume milk. Now, I'll cut dairy out from time to time to drop a bit of weight. Absolutely. If I'm weight stable, I'm fine with my bit of dairy, my cheeses and things like that. So we've got to, we've got to have people understand the principles, but not don't have one paradigm and everybody has to fit my paradigm. And yeah. that's the difficult thing about the internet because most people share the paradigm that has worked for them. And that's where most people don't say the nuanced information that you just brought up. And that's where it gets really hard because we may come to realize that standard care doesn't help. And so we try low carb, we try ketogenic diets, but then we still fall victim to the, well, I'm going to believe the authorities within this community and it, their paradigm may not be the same for me or work for me, but because they're an authority figure or they're an expert, I will believe it and follow it tooth and nail. And that's, that's the heartburn I see in our communities because depending on where you're coming from, depending on the, whether it was physical or mental or whatever reason you may have to restrict carbs, whether it's permanent or temporarily, 
we have to honor that and understand that in order to care for people. And that is what is missing on the internet so often. Well, you're absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, that's the problem generally. And I, I malign the, the, the word dietitian, but so often we see dietitians saying, you must do what I do. And they ascribe to a particular process because that's what works well for them. Or they're either so skinny that they can tolerate moderation or they're obese themselves and don't understand why. And um, so the most important thing, it doesn't matter what your title is, whether you're a doctor, a coach, a, uh, a, health, a allied health, it doesn't matter. Meet the person where they are. In other words, right. I, one of the things that I teach, a lot of people come through my office and they spend some time with me. And the very first thing in just chatting with somebody in the first few minutes is you want to relax them. And the best way to relax somebody is get them talking about themselves. But the first thing you want to do is understand whether they are authoritarian or permissive. In other words, do they need structure or do they need the dismantling of structure? Because that's where you begin to screw it up. And, you know, you said, oh, not everybody's pure con. I've got thousands of fastidious carnivores, people that won't put pepper on their steak because it's a plant. Um, and I, you know, I mean, you can laugh at that or not laugh at it. Um, but, but that rigidity is the reason why they're in trouble in the first place. And you have to help them to have, to develop compassion about not, not, uh, uh, um, mediocrity, but compassion toward themselves. And that striving for, you've got to understand where you want to be really perfect and where you want latitude. And and that's what I started this conversation about with is you want rigid boundaries, but with great latitude within those boundaries. And for the most part, as I said, I don't drink Diet Coke, but that Diet Coke is in my fridge in case I want it. It's part of my latitude. Sure. And and so often you're right. The people on the Internet are so rigid because this worked for me and they're so evangelical about it. And really, you know, if you look at it, the only thing. Well, you tell me, what is the only thing an alcoholic should do? Abstain. <laughs> Not drink alcohol. Right. Nobody tells an alcoholic what they should drink. But every flapping gum on the internet is telling fat people what they should eat. And, and that's just ludicrous. Uh, you know, the three of us understand it should not be carbohydrates with one caveat, which may be some of those vegetable carbohydrates. However, everybody's telling people, you must do this, you mustn't do this, the plant-based people, the carnivore. Hey, there's just so much clutter of noise. Yeah, people fall into the trap of like, oh, that person looks good. I want to look like them. I'm going to do what they're doing, even though your context is so much different than their context, right? I don't coach people. A lot of that is because I only know my own way. And I actually have stopped telling people the portions that I'm eating because in my old, like what I eat videos on YouTube, people would say, Oh, I need to eat as much as she's eating so I can get the same results as her. And so like, I, you know, my new video coming out, it shows all these great meal ideas, but I'm not telling you how much exactly I'm eating because I don't want you to replicate what I try to expect the same thing because my context is very different than your context. That that's why a hundred percent I don't show my meals because I show my kids meals. So you have an idea of what our family eats, but you will have no idea because I come from an eating disorder. I am super mindful of if I shared how much I ate for lunch and dinner. And then if I had a snack or not, then everyone will think, oh, then that's what I need to be eating because Judy's a nutritional therapist. And I don't want that because I, I've been down that road. I was sick from an eating disorder and I will never share that for that reason. Even though most people ask me, I'd love to see what you eat in a week, what you eat in a day. And I just don't want to do that because based on our 
uh, genes, our background, our history, our dietary intake of meats and fats will differ. No question. I, I don't know if you know a guy called Danny Vega. Um, mm-hmm. Danny's just this huge, big brute. He works out all the time. Well, I uh, was an alcoholic, recovered from that, gained a lot of weight. So that's his story. And Danny says something really funny. He says, you know, uh, I mean, his his arm muscles are bigger than my waist. Um, and I've got a pretty decent waist. I mean, he's just, he's just buffed. So he says, when I'm in the line at McDonald's buying a Big Mac fries and a Diet Coke, everyone's, or a Coke, everyone's, oh, look at Danny. But but when the fat person does that, oh, that's why they're fat. Right. So right. It, it really is that context. And I think what a lot of people on the internet don't understand is what worked for them worked for them. Right. And it's fine to talk about that or not talk about that, but that isn't true for every single person. We all got here. There's a communal eye of the needle, which is carbohydrates, but we've got to understand what works for individual people. And I think even the plant-based community or some of the, the folks that are migrating that way, they're trying to find answers. And instead of fighting them, I don't tell someone not to do this. I Say, hey, this is one option. And you're going to hear a polar opposite idea from most doctors out there. You've got to synthesize the information in your own, for yourself, you're smart, and do what you think is best for you. I can't force anybody to do this. So I'm comfortable telling people, but you're right, most of the time we we put out, my wife puts out what she eats or really what she feeds our son um, to help people to, to raise their kids a bit better. When I talk to people initially, and they say, what do you do? I give them the principles. Yeah. And I try to align myself with the, the most important thing that I can tell people. Wait, do you know what the most important thing that I tell people is? That I believe I, I have to share with people? What? I screw up and it's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not perfect and it's okay. I make mistakes and it's okay. Right. I don't live by my mistakes. I recognize them and I choose to correct them but you're going to make mistakes. Don't abandon what you do because this is a way of life. And every step forward is a step forward because there is no end point. There are no goals. Weight loss is just a milestone along the journey. Getting rid of diabetes is just a milestone along the journey. This journey ends 10 minutes after you die. And the beauty about it is you get to grow every single day. And some days it's uphill, some days it's downhill, some days it's sideways, some days it's badly sideways. But you always come back to the path because that's what you've chosen. And, you know, and, and if I can say, look, here I am, people come to me. I don't wear this expert hat. I don't claim to be that guy at all. I'm just a guy that understands some of the stuff and I can give you some insight. But you've got to walk your own path. Right. And let's mm-hmm. figure out what that is. And, uh, and is- there are too, you know, too many people out there saying you must do this. You must do this. You have right. to do this. Wrong, 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 wrong. I think it's really helpful to bring up all of this because, I mean, I always say no one is on their deathbed thinking, man, I wish I was five pounds lighter, but I'm sure that they wish that they had eaten healthier so they could live a little bit or longer. Or five years longer. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that most people think of in their deathbed is not anything to do with their weight or their shape or anything. It's, I wish I was kind to this person. Right. I wish I had done something that I talked myself out of. Uh, and and if you can learn to do those things now, the emotional restitution that comes from the things that you're going to regret not having done on your deathbed are more important than the things that you did do. And I think the distinction there is it's not that people are going to think on their deathbed, I wish I was kinder. So that means I should eat all the sugar and candy and treats and YOLO and I'm going to eat ice cream today because on my deathbed, I'm not. No, it doesn't mean 
I think that's the distinction people make. What we're saying is you want to live a long, happy, healthy life and have great relationships with people and make the most of it. Give yourself the choice to not consume those foods. Don't let that drive you to keep eating them when it doesn't make you healthy. I think there's also a very important mistake that the internet makes a lot. And I understand there's a fiscal component to this, is that a lot of people on the internet promise people health and longevity. They Oh, if you do this, you're going to live longer. You must do this to live longer. It's anti-aging. Okay. The reality is that all of us are predetermined to die. Yes. We're all going to die. And we all pretty much have a genetically based predetermination of how long we should be living for. Okay. And so let's call that a hundred years. What we then do as we live our lives is we subtract from that time. We can't add extra unless we change our genes. We can't add extra time to our lives, but we can reduce the subtraction. So, for example, if you, and it's always a choice, subtraction is almost always a choice. Now, if you get hit by lightning, all that, of course, things happen (laughs) unexpectedly. But for the most part, we are going to die from something we chose to do. Something we chose to do. You choose to text while you're driving. You may suddenly subtract from your life or somebody else's life. You choose to overindulge in alcohol. You choose unsafe sex. You choose to not have stress relief in your life. You choose to use nicotine or heroin. You choose to eat a ton of carbohydrates. It is a choice. And you can unchoose those. You can choose not to. But every one of those will shorten your predetermined life. And you can choose to lengthen your life. You can't choose to live longer. And that's such an important thing because ultimately we all make choices. Um, I've chosen not to be an exercise demon because that's not a part of my life that I want to prolong. Do I focus on, on mobility? Absolutely. Am I in the gym for an hour every day? No. So that's a choice I've made. And you know what? If that shortens my life, I'll take that every day. I've chosen not to eat carbohydrates because that transformation is very likely to add to not only the length of my life, but the quality of my life. So those are the choices. And I can't make choices for you. As we wrap up, I think, you know, this is something that you, you've seen tens and thousands of patients. I mentioned the beginning, but really, truly the work and the messages that you share, some of these key points really did change my life. I know you are changing so many lives and and this is so personal to you. The work that you do, your passion for it is a lot of the reason is because it is so personal to you. If you could, you know, there's people who have been impacted, they're coming to you, they're looking at your content uh, and they're seeking for that. But if, if the world could wake up tomorrow with some piece of knowledge or information that you wish that everybody could know, right? Everybody in the world, whether they're looking for it or not, would wake up and understand something. What is it that you wish uh, that most people would know? I think uh, certainly in healthcare and even personally, what we've stopped doing is asking why. And if you look at healthcare, healthcare has shifted very heavily toward therapeutics, which is we do blood work and we see a number that's off. Here's a pill for you. Mm. We don't ask why is that number off? We look at obesity. Here's a diet to help you lose weight. We don't ask why is that person fat? Someone's type 2 diabetic, here's a pill for you to reduce your type 2 diabetes. Why are you diabetic? And we've stopped asking why. Why am I eating this right now? Why am I doing this right now? Why do I feel the way I feel right now? We've lost touch with introspection. 
And if you can do anything, it is live in that world of why. And if you can learn to solve that for yourself or answer that for yourself, you're going to go a very, very long way, irrespective of what anybody else says. You know, whether it comes to COVID vaccination or not, I don't care if you're vaccinated or not, but ask yourself why. I don't care if you eat a tub of ice cream or not, but ask yourself why. And and that is something we are forgetting as a society because everybody's telling us what we have to do. Hmm. And that's what the internet has done. And I love the fact that Facebook has lost market share. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Thank you. I think this is really, really important. There's yeah. so many people I work with that say, I don't have a food addiction. I don't have a food issue. I've never been, I never had an eating disorder. And I think we start to classify the only people that struggle with eating issues are people that are defined as um, bulimic or anorexic. And I really think it's pervasive in our society. I mean, there is a reason why most people fall into the overweight and obese category. I think it affects so many of us. And this topic of we will never really resolve this without really looking in within us and realizing why are we grabbing food? It doesn't matter if it's meat. It doesn't matter if it's carbohydrates, but why? And starting to do that hard work because it is hard work, but that is a true path to actually truly heal. And then this discussion is just provided so many tools to really get you started. So thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. I thank you very that. much. Just to, just to one quick response to that is that, if you're going to ask yourself any questions like that is, how do I respond to stress? How do I respond to shame? How do I respond to anxiety and depression and anger and fear and exhaustion and boredom and pleasure? How? What are my tools? Forget about obesity and everything else. What is in my emotion management toolkit? And that is the holy grail. What do I do to give myself a sense of self, self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-respect? What do I do for those three things? Because that is what defines human beings. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. What's the best way for people to find you or to support you? And how can they uh, view more of your content? So I, I am on, having maligned the social medias, I'm on all of them, uh, Facebook, TikTok. Um, I'm too old to be on TikTok, <laughs> but I'm on there because somebody puts me on there. But Facebook, TikTok, uh, Instagram, and I post every day on those, just a little saying, a little phrase, really to connect with my people and keep their heads in the game. And it's the goal is to make you think. You can yell and scream at me or you can say, wow, I never thought of that. Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, that's what that's there for. My educational material is on YouTube at Carb Addiction Doc. My wife posts a lot of stuff on Carb Addiction Mom and particularly about how we're raising our son because our children are our future or the end of the species. Right. Um, as we know it. And then the final piece is I am a clinically practicing doctor. So if you text 561-517-0642 by WhatsApp or text, uh, you can set up an appointment to see me. Be patient because we're full. But um, if you text or call that number and leave a message, somebody in my office will reach out and set up a visit. And we'll put all the information in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. This was really a, a treat for me. And it was great to finally be able to thank you in, per, in video person. <laughs> great. No, thank you both very much. I appreciate what you guys are doing and getting the word out there. Thank you, Dr. Sivas. Okay. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. 
We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura East Bath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. <laughs>